have been uh, stumped a couple times with uh, some weather where we were held out of services by weather in one week where I was sick. And um, so hopefully we'll get back on schedule here and get moving through. And um, before we go uh, to our, our lesson this evening, uh, let's take a few moments to go to the Lord in prayer. We have uh, some requests that are uh, mentioned tonight. Um, someone has turned in a prayer request here for dental insurance. Uh, that the family will be saved and in church and for some issues regarding their business. Um, then also for, um, uh, looks like, uh, going going out of town for a few days. Who who wrote that one? Okay. Uh, oh, Nita. Okay. Nita and Fletcher. Okay. Couldn't quite read the two names there. Okay. Nita and Fletcher. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Nita and Fletcher will be going out of town uh, the end, uh, here in a couple of days, aren't they? Leaving Friday? Saturday, okay. So, so I better take him flying before he leaves. We need to get to you. <laughs> there you go. So, there you go. So, pray for them as they travel, that they'll have traveling mercies. And then uh, pray for Bradley Seal. Um, also for Brother Dan Roberts, uh, was, he and I were supposed to go out for lunch yesterday, and he had to call and cancel, said he had a, kind of a relapse of some things, so pray that uh, God will bless there and, and give him recovery. Um, pray for Michael uh, uh, Pettimone and uh, some, some personal issues, and he talked with me Sunday, and we we're praying about uh, an issue and uh, very, uh, very near to his heart, and so please, if you would, keep Michael in prayer. And uh, then Todd Horton, who has cancer, and uh, Brother Tom's health and job situation. For Hannah Leak, uh, the family we've been praying for out in Texas, uh, for her health, and that the doctors will uh, be able to uh, figure out and diagnose what she's got going on there. And then uh, for unspoken uh, prayer requests, and do we have any other unspoken requests tonight? One, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. All right, twelve. Twelve unspoken prayer requests tonight. And so keep those in prayer. And then um, uh, Brother Mark wanted to give a praise report. Uh, he said, I thank God that my meds seem to be helping. Hope my body gets adjusted to them very soon. And so uh, that's a good answer to prayer. We thank the Lord for that. And uh, it's always a joy to see God do something great, isn't it? And uh, I was, um, had been asking for prayer for my mom. And uh, she went and had her test Friday, and she got the preliminary results back early on, and they were very favorable. We were very excited about the results from that. They were concerned that maybe her cancer was coming back, and uh, it didn't seem to be from the radiologist. And then it went to her um, her surgeon, and he also had to look at them and everything. And he uh, called her, I guess it was uh, Tuesday, uh, Monday, I think it was Monday, and gave her a clean bill of health again. So praise the Lord for that. What an answer to prayer there. And um, then I'd also ask for a prayer for uh, Abigail Wilkie, uh, who was sepsis on, had sepsis on Sunday. Uh, the antibiotics were not working. They took her in for a second surgery. And while they were in there, they found that there was uh, uh, less wrong with her than they initially thought and that there was some great improvement along the way. So she's doing much better now. And uh, an answer to prayer there because there was some could have been a lot more serious than it was and uh, started with a kidney infection about a month or so ago and didn't get dealt with right away and so uh, it, it became very serious and so I thank the Lord for answer to prayer there because uh, boy Sunday it didn't wasn't looking real good she wasn't going the right direction 
and saw a couple posts from her yesterday and her mom, and she was sitting up. She actually took a walk around the floor that she was on, and she's real weak but, uh, but recovering. So thank the Lord for that. And uh, God is so good, isn't he? And uh, uh, it's amazing to see how he answers prayer. And even sometimes before we even ask, he answers, doesn't he? Uh, before the need even comes, we, we get the answer. And what a joy it is uh, to see those things. So we thank the Lord for that. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, then we'll get into our lesson this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you with these requests that have been mentioned tonight. Lord, a number of our folks that have sicknesses, illness that's going on, uh, we think of our families recently, Brother Everett Scheffler and Miss June Bolin, and then here with Ron Beckett, uh, Lord, three of our folks that just recently have passed into heaven. And Lord, we rejoice that they're with you. We rejoice that they're healed from their physical problems, but we do pray for their families. We do pray for comfort in the days here as the funerals have passed and all the support and the families have gone home. The friends are back to their uh, ordinary day jobs and Life And, Lord, oftentimes these are the toughest and the darkest days for the families. We pray that you would bring great comfort and uh, strength to them. We pray for Hannah tonight. And, Lord, so many, so many have been praying for so long for her. And we pray that the doctors will come to a place where they will get uh, a resolution to it, uh, that they'll fin- figure out what's going on, be able to treat it and take care of the problems. And then, Lord, we're thankful for the answers to prayer, Lord, especially uh, personally for the answer to prayer with my mom. What a joy uh, to have that good report. And then for Abby this week and just to see your hand at work there. Uh, we thank you, thank you that we can get a good report from Brother Mark tonight and, Lord, how you've been working in his life and his, giving him recovery. And yet, Lord, there are a number of our folks that uh, are in need of uh, some physical uh, healing. Some of them are in need of some guidance and direction, wisdom in their lives. Uh, Lord, there's a number of folks here tonight that uh, we need to to be in a place where we're more surrendered and yielded to you, where we're growing daily. Lord, may we not become stagnant in our Christian lives, but may there be a continued growth and a renewing of our joy day by day. I pray that you help us as we come to your word tonight. Now guide and direct us. May your Holy Spirit Uh, open the truth and unfold it before our eyes. May we see it clearly and plainly. Help me to have clarity of thought and mind tonight and to be able to rightly divide your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3. We've been dealing now with the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. These are seven literal churches that were in existence during John's time. And uh, this is the revelation of God to these churches. Let me rephrase that. He's writing these letters to the angels of the churches. Actually, they're written to the pastors of these churches uh, for the church's benefit. And uh, we get to um, uh, chapter number 3 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not 
defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Sardis uh, is the fifth of the seven letters and is... The only one of the one of the only churches. There is one other one that God gives no commendation to. Uh, he does not praise them for anything. Uh, this is a very very wicked, uh, ungodly uh, church that they're in. The the their, if you remember the study that we did on Thyatira, the church right before this, uh, the immorality, uh, the woman that was uh, causing uh, men to, to fall away. Uh, to be idolatrous uh, and to be immoral. Um, that was in Thyatira. Thyatira was only about 30 miles down the road uh, from Sardis. And uh, so Sardis is, is a very, very wicked city. Uh, has a lot of influence, I believe, from Thyatira. Um, but we spent some time last Wednesday night, and not all of you were here, so I'm going to go back and just do a quick review. Uh, I'm not going to teach the whole lesson again. On verse number 1, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath. And then this is a unique phrase. The seven spirits, capital S, of God and the seven stars. And I wanted, we spent a little bit of time last week talking about the seven spirits of God. This is the second time we've seen it in the book of Revelation. The first time was in chapter number 1 and verse number 4. And so um, when we come to prophecy, we always want to try to understand it as clearly as we can. And one of the general rules we follow is uh, when the plain sense makes perfect sense, then don't seek any other sense. In other words, just take it for what it says if it's able to be understood that way. That One of the other rules that we follow is if it, if it doesn't make sense, if we don't understand it, then let's look elsewhere in Scripture and see if the Bible makes sense of it. I don't want to have to sit here and try to speculate, but I'd rather the Bible tell us what it means, if at all possible. So there are other places that the Bible uses this expression, and we're going to take some time to look at this. Now, I will tell you that I believe, and I'm going to make the, the I'm going to get to the conclusion, and then I'm going to give you the evidence for it. All right, uh, I do believe here that this phrase, the seven spirits of God, are referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to give you some very strong evidence of that in Scripture. If you decide that at the end of all this, you still don't want to, uh, to hold to that, I, I'm not going to split hairs with you on it uh, because I don't have that many to spare, all right? So uh, we can be in disagreement on that and still be okay. But I'll give you some reasons why. The, one of the first reasons I have for it is found in chapter number 1 and verse number 4. If you'll take a moment to turn back there for a moment. The Bible says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace so he's asking two things to, to be bestowed on these churches. And he says, by, he's going to say, I, these, these are the people I'm imploring to bestow grace and peace to the churches. And so these are the, the ones that he's asking or petitioning this of. He says, from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, capital S there again, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. Again, we have a couple of indications in chapter 1 and verse 4 that this is dealing with the Holy Spirit of God. One of them is 
he's enumerated with the other two figures of the Godhead. God the Father, he who was and is and is to come. The seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. John is imploring these three, these three agents uh, to uh, bestow grace and peace on the churches. Uh, a second reason that I have is we hold strongly to our King James Version of Scripture. We believe it to be uh, without error preserved for the English-speaking people. It is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, preserved Word of God. And it, is, uh, it has, the, the King James Version uh, of our Bible has expressed the seven spirits as a deity as seen in the capitalization of the word spirit. It's not found at the beginning of a sentence, and so it is in reference here to deity. And so the translators, from the things that they have studied, from the text that they translated from, and from their own understanding of this, and after much prayer and guidance by the Holy Spirit, they were led to capitalize the letter S in this case. Do what? How many of you have a Bible where it's a lowercase s? Okay, you need to get a right Bible then. <laughs> there, and I will say this. Now, I will say this. We're going to probably open a Pandora's box here. There are different publishers that change the King James Version of Scripture. And you need to be careful of that because it will change our doctrine, believe it or not. It will change our doctrine. So... Uh, all right, so be careful of that. I'm not telling you to go throw this one away, but uh, look for some things. I'll tell you a really good way to tell. If you go to Genesis 1-1 uh, on any of the books, the Bibles that you're looking at, and find out if they capitalize that spirit, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Is yours? Okay. So be careful and understand. Uh, try to understand that uh, as best you can. Uh, find ones that are, are the older the older versions, and that the publishers have not changed that because some of them will do this to change our doctrine. All right? So the third reason that we have, okay, so we have, we have him, first of all, enumerated uh, with the God the Father and Jesus Christ. So we see the three figures of the Godhead there in chapter 1 and verse 4. We also see that he's given a place before the throne. Uh, there's another deity that's, uh, of the Godhead, another part of the triune Godhead, that also has a place beside the throne, and his place is at the right hand of the throne of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, the, the Spirit has a place before the throne of God. So again, very like Christ, uh, has a position at the throne. Um, God describes himself to Sardis as he which hath the seven spirits of God. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he said, I will pray my Father, and he shall send another comforter. Not only did God the Father have the Holy Spirit in His hand, but He was going to send the Holy Spirit. Uh, so a very interesting thought there. Uh, in uh, chapter number uh, 4, let's go take a look in chapter 4 of Revelation. And again, we're going to see several places where this phrase is used. And uh, let's look in verse number 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we have the lamps pictured here. In uh, chapter 1, we had the candlesticks, if you'll remember that. We had the candlesticks uh, that were there, which held the lamp that was burning. Uh, and so the, the uh, churches are to hold forth the light that is to go out into the world. So again, here is the lamps that are on those candlesticks. 
that are before the throne of God, and these are the seven spirits of God. Again, the light of the world being referenced here. <clears throat> verse number, chapter number 5, and let's look in verse number 6. <clears throat> and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, capital L, so we know that's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. That's interesting because when we find horns mentioned in Revelation, it is usually in response or in indication of ruling or power or might or strength. And when we have eyes that are mentioned, it speaks of uh, the uh, omnipresence or the knowledge of uh, seeing everything, being aware of things. And so Jesus is the one who uh, has seven horns. He has the seven eyes. And the Bible says these are the seven spirits of God sent forth. Notice this phrase into all the earth. So these seven spirits, capital S spirits, are sent forth into all the earth. Now, hold your place here for a moment, and let's look back to Zechariah chapter number 4. Zechariah chapter number 4 in the Old Testament. And uh, let's look in verse number 1. Zechariah chapter 4, and let's look in verse number 1. If I can get the right chapter here. Page is sticking. And the angel that talked with me came again and awaked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of all gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and the seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, now Notice this phrase here, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is speaking here of the proper name of God, uh, the not not his uh, position, but his title, his, his name, and who he is, his being, um, the Spirit of the Lord of Hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with the shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord, capital O R D, came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Interesting. So in verse number uh, 6, he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And when you get down to verse number 10, it says uh, that uh, when he's giving uh, encouragement to Zerubbabel, he says, for they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. Those seven what? The spirit of the Lord, those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. That's the same expression that is used in Revelation chapter five, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter five, and verse number six, 
when it says that the seven spirits of God are sent forth into all the earth. So why does it say seven spirits? Should that be a problem to us? We're not talking about the Holy Spirit being seven different beings. Uh, it should not have to be a problem to us because oftentimes in prophecy, the number seven is not to enumerate but to express completion or fullness of. And we'll find that time and time again as we study through Revelation uh, that is dealing with the wholeness of it, the fact that it's complete, it's perfect, it's all of it. Um, and so the number seven shouldn't have to be an issue for us, something that we have an issue with. Even if we do have an issue with it, let's turn to Isaiah chapter number 11, and there could be a possible explanation here as well in Isaiah chapter number 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and let's look in verse number 2. We're going to find here seven indications of what the Spirit does. Uh, maybe His actions some of his attributes. And let's look at verse number 2. The Spirit of the Lord, capital O-R-D, so again, we're dealing here with the same, same idea here, shall rest upon him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So we have two spirits listed there along with the Spirit of the Lord. That's three of them. The Spirit of counsel and might. There's two more. That's five. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There's seven. So again, not necessarily dealing with seven individual spirits, but the fullness or the wholeness of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It's the, the role that He plays. It's what He deals with. And so again, perhaps that could be an easy uh, understanding, make it a little bit easier uh, for us to believe that this is speaking here of the Holy Spirit of God. Um, certainly it is not speaking here of angelic beings. The fact that John chapter, probably the strongest argument uh, for it for me has been John uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, where John enumerates him, the seven spirits of God, with the other two members of the Godhead. He gives credit to the fact that the three of them are the ones he is petitioning, he is praying to, and asking for them to give grace and peace unto the churches. I don't know that an angel would have that authority. I believe only one of the members of the Godhead, and in this case, all of the members of the Godhead, would have that authority. And I think that verse alone should be sufficient for us uh, to understand that, that type of a thing. Um, let see if I've covered all of it. So I think that's about all that I had from last week uh, to talk about that. Okay, so let's move on then into the church at Sardis. Again, uh, if you say, well, Brother Greg, I don't know that I fully hold to that seven spirits of God being the Holy Spirit. It's fine. It's not going to change what we're going to be teaching about the church at Sardis. But since we're going to see this phrase a number of times in Revelation, I felt it important that we understand what it is speaking of here, if at all possible. So let's take a look now at the church of Sardis itself. Um, Let's look in verse number uh, 2 of chapter number 3. He tells, or let's look at the end of verse number 1. He says, I know thy works. Now, this is not unusual. All of the churches so far, God has said, I know thy works. And by the way, um, that's a teaching of Scripture. You'll know uh, a tree by the fruit that it produces. And so certainly God was saying, look, I know your works. I understand this. 
But notice that he does not give a commendation. This is one of the only churches that we've seen so far that does not get a commendation from the Lord. Uh, It says that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. In other words, you're not what you seem to be. Uh, This church outwardly looked okay. People that saw it from the outside um, would consider it a church that was an okay church. It had a name that it was alive. Um, there might, and I don't know if they had other churches in the city at that time, uh, other than this one church. They call it the Church of Sardis. So I'm assuming there was only one at the time. But it's not like today where we have churches all over the place. And if you don't like one, if you think one church is dead, you're not getting a lot out of it, you go to another one. And uh, can I tell you this, that uh, just because something uh, uh, stirs your foot uh, or appeals to the flesh nature doesn't mean that it's a live church. Uh, there's churches I can take you to tonight that have a lot of excitement going on in them, and I don't think the Holy Spirit's anywhere near them. And uh, so you got to be careful what you're making your, your basis on. This church outwardly had a name, means that their testimony was such that even those outside of the church believed it to be a live church, a church that was doing well and not having issues, and they had a good testimony, a good reputation. And perhaps at some point in the early part of that church, they were a good church. In fact, I believe they were because of the, uh, the challenge and the charge that's given to them a little bit later here. I believe this church really had strong, solid foundation when it began. But in the first century, already they had begun to drift and there were some problems. And God said, you're almost dead. Not quite there, but you're almost there. And uh, so let's take a look at this. It says, I know thy name, uh, thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things, notice this, which remain. So not everything was gone yet that are ready to die. They haven't quite died yet, but they're about a half a hair's breadth away from that being everything And God says at that point, that church will be a dead church. There's no use for it. It's not going to have any good in it. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die. By the way, that is a great challenge. When we read the first part of Revelation, if you'll remember back, it says, blessed is he that hears the words of this prophecy and reads the the, the words of this prophecy and does what is written therein. We focus on the hearing and the reading We don't always focus on the doing. These charges and challenges that are given to these churches are there for our good and our help, for us to understand, hey, there are things that if we're not careful in our church will begin to slip. This this book and this Bible that we hold to and that we cherish so much, if we're not careful, that will slip. The music that we sing here, if we're not careful, that will slip. The the standards and the testimony, the outward outward, uh, testimony that we have as a church if we're not careful, those things will begin to slip. And Paul, uh, uh, John writes here uh, uh, the words that God is giving to the angel of the church at, at uh, Sardis, saying, uh, be watchful and strengthen. The idea of being watchful is a continuation of an action here. Um, the idea of a watchman that's sitting up on a wall. And uh, all of us have read um, old literature, or we've read perhaps in the Old Testament, the idea of a watchman that is responsible for his watch and he fell asleep. And because the enemy came while he was asleep, he was guilty of the blood of those that were killed during the battle and was held responsible for it. 
Now, can I tell you this, that God has entrusted the most precious thing that He has in this world, and that is His truth, His Word. He has entrusted that to the church. The Bible says that it is the pillar and the ground upon which truth rests. This, this, this entity that God has established, the New Testament church, the local New Testament church has been given the, the responsibility to be watchful, to guard this book. Uh, we, we have ministries today that are, that are all consumed about doing the next great thing to help bring people into the church. When we ought to be guarded and watching and saying, we want to be a Bible-based church. We, we want to make sure that we are holding to the Scriptures. We want to make sure that we're doing what God has said we ought to do. And I don't care how many other preachers preach something contrary. If the Bible says it, then I want to believe it. And if the Bible says I shouldn't do it, I don't want to do it. If it says I should do it, I want to do it. And, and we've got to be careful that we hold the ground here, that we're watchful of these things, because obviously this church had a great founding. Uh, notice down in uh, verse number 3, the Bible says, Remember therefore... Notice this phrase, and I think this phrasing is very interesting. It says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. It wasn't just that they got the Word of God, but apparently there was something special. There was something supernatural about how this Word came about to them. It was such that they emphasized not just that they had the truth, but how that truth came to them. Something that when it happened was enough to convince them that God was in this thing. And when this truth came and they made their initial planting of that church and the truth was paramount and the truth was important, can I encourage you in this, if that church that had a solid foundation that grew on the Word of God when it was first founded can get to the place where it says that they were almost gone. There were only a little, just a hair's breadth of things that had not yet died. And I tell you this, if that church can get there, any church can get there. <clears throat> Therefore, we have the challenge from God in verse 2. Be watchful. Keep your eyes open. Be aware of things that will creep in and cause us to slip concerning the things of the Bible. That will cause us to drift. We've talked so much about how most churches, most Christians are more concerned about their distance from the world than they are about their closeness to the Word of God. If all we do is focus on our distance from the world, we drift right along with them. We've got to say, no, I don't want to keep a certain distance from the world. I want to stay close to the Bible. I really don't care where the world goes. I'm going to stay here. We've got to be so careful. Why? Because there are things that will creep in unaware. They'll creep in easily. They'll creep in sometimes without us paying a whole lot of attention to them. And the next thing you know, we'll find ourselves in a place that we never thought we would find ourselves. I've shared this illustration a couple times before, but years ago when I lived in Florida, my wife then wanted a, 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 a flower bed out in front of the house. <coughs> I, I had mowed grass most of my life growing up as a teenager and as it earned money, and I didn't like mowing grass in the hot Florida sun, blistering sun. And as I got older, I, I wanted the least 
maintenance. I wanted the most maintenance-free yard I could possibly have. I didn't want it. I was not one of these guys that loved to go out and work in my yard. I just didn't like it. And I told her, I said, I don't want to have a flower bed because if we put one in there, it's going to get weeds. I don't feel like cleaning it out. And she begged and pleaded. She said, oh, please, please. And if, if you'll do it, I will weed the garden. Any men have a wife do something like that to you before? Finally, she talked me into it. And I said, okay, but you're going to do it. Well, she did for about a week or two. And then you know, you know who got the responsibility after that. And um, I remember coming home. We had dollar weed. Uh, they called it dollar weed in Florida. It was a big, broad leaf thing that would sprout up, just a little thing about that tall. But if it would, it would grow so close-knit together, it would create shade over whatever it grew, and it would kill it. And uh, I remember coming home one day, and, there was, and these things would sprout up all the time. Uh, dollar weed sprung up, and I thought, I walked in the door, and I thought, man, I'm going to have to get that this Saturday. I came out Saturday, and there was probably eight or ten now of these little sprouts sticking up, and I mowed the grass, and it was hot, and I thought, well, I'll do it after I mow. And I was hot, and I was tired, and I got done, and I walked in the house, and I thought, I'm, I'll, you know what, I'm going to mow next Saturday. I'll, I'll feel better. Uh, I'll get out here. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I came out next Saturday. You know what? You know how it happens. You all have been there. You know, I, I don't have to tell you. You know, several weeks go by. Next thing you know, I look in my flower bed, and it's almost all dollar weed covering the ground, and my flowers sticking up between them. And uh, finally, my wife got upset about it, and I, I said, well, okay, I'll get out there, and we'll, we'll I, I, after I remind her that she was going to weed it, uh, went out there, and uh, I started pulling the dollar weed up. And dollar weed shoots runners, and then shoots another sprout up, and we had mulch there. And what you couldn't see below the mulch was that this thing had made a mesh of vines and had intergrown. As I began to pull up those dollar weeds, it began to tear my entire garden up. My whole flower bed started coming up. Big chunks of mulch, whole things of flowers would pop up out of the ground as I pulled these dollar weeds up. I thought of that as I thought of how often we allow the little things to creep in in our churches and in our lives personally. And we leave them undealt with. And we think, I'll get to it. You know, it's not a big thing. It can't hurt a lot. I mean, it's just one little thing. I, you know what? I'm too tired right now. I just don't, I, I don't feel like doing it. I'll deal with it later. Until it's almost too late. Now when you deal with it, it hurts tears some things up. It causes damage. God's speaking to this church and saying, listen, you guys have let this stuff go on long enough. He says, be watchful. Notice what else He says in verse 2. And strengthen the things which remain. (laughs) There weren't a whole lot of them remaining. And the best that God had to say about that which remained, He said, that are ready to die. That little bit that is still there, it's right on the verge, guys. He says, be watchful. Don't let any more come in. And what little bit you got, you need to find some way to strengthen it. Grow it. Build it. Get it back where it was. And I encourage us as Keith the Heights Baptist Church, we need to be watchful for things that will creep in, both into our personal lives and into our church. And I don't care if it's the pastor who's bringing it in. I expect our church to deal with it. We need to be careful of these things. We need to be watchful of these things. We want to be biblical. We want to be right, not popular. We want to be right, 
And we want to be in tune with God's Word. And so verse number 2, he says, uh, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before the Lord. And he's not talking about them being without fault here. He's talking about them being mature. <coughs> Your works haven't grown. There's not been some spiritual growth there. He says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch... I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know when the, uh, what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names. Notice this in verse 4, and we're going to end here in just a moment. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. That's an interesting thought. is an interesting phrase. There's a few. There's some that haven't gone down this road. There's a few that haven't, notice this, defiled their garments. You know the people that that went down that road of, of um, immorality, idolatry in the church house. They tried to bring the world into the church house. You know that group? The Bible doesn't say they lost their garment. They were still saved if they were ever saved. But it said that they defiled their garment. Whose garment was it? Let's take a look here. Keep that thought in mind. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they, speaking of those which have not defiled their garments, shall walk with me in what? White, for they are what? Worthy. Are any of us worthy to walk in white before God, appearing as though we are perfect? Are any of us worthy of that? No, we're not. We are made worthy because we have what the Bible refers to as the imputed righteousness of Christ put upon us. Here's the thought. Don't miss it. There were a large number of people in this church that defiled their what? Whose garment was it? When we live that way, who are we defiling? Whose testimony are we dragging through the mud? Mine? No. I'm a sinner. Trust me. There's not a whole lot you can drag that's going to be any worse than what I really am inwardly. But the righteousness that God has given to me, I can defile that. It doesn't cause me to lose my salvation. Aren't we glad of that? Look with me, if you will, in Ezekiel chapter 16 and keep that thought in mind. Ezekiel chapter number 16. And I understand that the passage we're getting ready to read, and I want to be fair with you on this, the context of it is it's written to the children of Israel. But the principle of what is taught in it is applicable to this day. Let's look in verse number 14. Ezekiel chapter number 16 and verse number 14. And I'm going to back up to verse 13 here and talk about this. God is speaking of what He has done for Israel. And you can read it from, really, from verse 1 of this chapter down. And you'll see all these things that God did and gave to Israel, how He blessed them, how He was doing all these things. In verse 13, we kind of pick up in the middle of the list. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk, and broidered work, 
Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom, and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. For it was perfect through my what? Comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. You know what he was saying there? He said, I took your comeliness and gave you my beauty. And this is how Israel responded. Watch what it says, verse 15. But thou, thou didst trust in thine own beauty. (laughs) Did Israel have any beauty other than God? No, they didn't. So even though God refers to it as their beauty, we understand there was no beauty there. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playedest the harlot because of thy renown, and pourest out thy fornications on every one that passed by. His it was, and thy garments thou didst take, and deckedest with thy high places, with diverse colors, and playedest the harlot there, upon the like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. God says, listen, I've given you my beauty. I've given you the garment. It's a white garment. It allows us to stand worthy before God so that we can commune with Him and fellowship with Him. But it's not our righteousness. It's not our robe. It's not our goodness. It's the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ that He has given to us. It's His beauty. It's His spotlessness that we have been given. How dare we take this beautiful garment that God has given to you and I and defile it. In a world that we live that is looking at us and saying, I wonder what kind of God they serve. I've been in churches that preach hard on standards of conduct, standards of dress. I've been in it where you had some on this side arguing and some on this side arguing. Well, show me in the Bible. It's, I don't know. Is it in the Bible? Is it not in the Bible? It shouldn't matter. It ought to be my desire to take the spotless robe that God has imputed to me and keep it that way. My church shouldn't have to teach on standards. My church shouldn't have to teach on what I should, how I should act or how my speech should be. My church shouldn't have to teach on what I ought to wear. It ought to just be understood. I have a righteousness that is not my own. I've got to be watchful. I've got to strengthen it. I've got to be so careful of it. Because that quick... I can defile it. Thou hast a few names, verse number 4. Even in Sardis. (laughs) I find that reflective on how bad the city was. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me. We're not talking about here about salvation. We're talking here about fellowship. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
You know what the antithesis of that truth is? If my garment is defiled, I am not worthy to walk with Him. That fellowship is broken. He that overcometh, we talked about that being those that are saved, not people that strive to do good, but people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand from Scripture that that is what this phrase means. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Blessed is he that hears the words of this prophecy, that read the words of this prophecy, and do what is written therein. Folks, we've got to be careful. These seven churches are seven literal churches that were in, in place in the first century. But there are lessons to be learned from them that apply to our churches today. Things that we can take and say, I don't ever want to get to the place where Sardis was. It's possible for someone that professes Christ to be thought of by themselves and by others to be a living, thriving Christian. And yet, they would be dead in the eyes of God. The inside is not what it should be. We need to be watchful. We need to strengthen what remains. And we need to be careful that we do not defile the garments that have been so graciously and lovingly given to us at great cost. Let's keep them pure. All right, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. Father, what a joy it is to study Your Word, to learn from it. Lord, it's so rich with truth. And I pray that You would help us as we read its pages, as we study it, as we look into it. Lord, may Your Holy Spirit guide us, help us to have full understanding of the truth, that we will apply it to our lives. And Lord, not just be a hearer or a forgetful hearer, but that we will put the things that we learn in, into our lives as part of who we are. Lord, our heart's desire is to daily be drawn closer to You, to become more like You, to be more pleasing to You. Lord, we love You so much. We pray that You'll help us and guide us in these things, help to call to remembrance these truths. As we go through our life, may they come at the, the moments that are needed to help us remain unspotted and undefiled by this world. Dismiss us now with your blessings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.